This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Terry Fry tells us about his new book, March 1939, Before the Madness. Then PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald tells us what's happening in the world of comics and graphic novels. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Looking at nonfiction, we have uh, uh, two books that started off as uh, diet books and the uh, next time round came out as cookbooks and have done well. They were very successful as diet books and this is not unusual. This is um, pretty common for a diet book that is wildly successful then come out with a cookbook. And the, uh, the first one at number eight is by J.J. Virgin coming out from Grand Central Publishing and it's called The Virgin Diet Cookbook. Drop seven foods, lose seven pounds, just seven days. And uh, she's the author of the uh, Virgin Diet. She's got 150 recipes in this book and she has recipes and uh, advice for diet for people who are diabetics and uh, specifically vegetarians, vegans, uh, people who follow the paleo low-carb uh, diet, and, and also those who are on a budget and on the go or need, need something uh, quick. So uh, that book in that first week out is sold about, about 7,000 copies. The next one at number 10 is the Daniel Plan Cookbook, Healthy Eating for Life. This is by Rick Warren. He's the founding pastor of the Saddlebrook Church uh, in uh, Lake Forest, California. He's got about 30,000 member congregation. This book is based on his first book, the Daniel Plan book. And it, it's interesting. It's written with Mark Hyman, who's a uh, physician. And he's also a New York Times bestselling author of uh, such books as The Blood Sugar Solution, another diet book. So that's at number 10. And at number 18, I'm happy to see the guest uh, from last week's show, uh, Alan Paul, uh, and his book, uh, One Way Out, The Inside History of the Allman Brothers Band. Uh, it's kind of fun having an author on the on the show the week before or the week uh, his or her book debuts and mm-hmm. uh, have him talk about it and then to see it on the list. And this is uh, an oral history, and uh, we call it entertaining, compulsively readable. Uh, you know, the Allman Brothers are really popular, have a big following, of that, especially of that age group, and I think even some younger listeners but uh, they seem to really uh, like this one. So um, good for Alan Paul. Yeah, absolutely. It's fun talking with him. And, of course, that episode, like every episode of PW Radio, is on our website. So uh, whether you're listening to this on our site or on iTunes, you can just go back and check the previous episode and hear what Alan Paul has to say about his now best-selling book. Fantastic. So fiction, what do you got? Fiction. We have a new number one. Um, Number one with a bullet is Concealed in Death by Mm J.D. Robb, which is well-known pseudonym for Nora Roberts. Mm -hmm. Um, This woman just does not stop writing. Mm. She 
churns them out and they do very well. She's extremely popular. This one sold 35,000 copies in its first week. It's very, very impressive. Um, this is part of her Eve Dallas series. Uh, you know, as Nora Roberts, she writes women's fiction, romantic fiction. As J.D. Robb, she writes suspense. And so this is a suspenseful series um, featuring a young woman named Eve Dallas, uh, who is actually somewhat in the future and is investigating crimes that may have taken place in the past. Mm. So uh, these are these are interesting investigations. Certainly people have been following the Eve Dallas adventures who want to pick up the latest book. And uh, we didn't review it, but the early reviews on sites like Amazon are pretty positive. Great. So that's at number one. Number eight, we have a science fiction title. I don't get to see those on the, the, the top of our bestseller list very often. But no, we haven't seen one at all. It's right there. It's Like a Mighty Army by David Weber uh, from Tor Books. Now, you know, it sold about 7,000 copies, but this time of year, that's enough to propel you fairly mm-hmm. high. So it's there at uh, number eight. And then this is this is an interesting book. It's part of an ongoing series, the seventh book in the Safe Hold series, which is set in the far future. And... Um, we we really thought this book was pretty terrific. He's doing some interesting things. It's not your your bog standard soap opera, space opera, mm. and. Um, <laughs> In in particular, the protagonist is an interesting character. Started out as a woman, is now in a male robot body, and uh, is having some interesting identity issues. Oh wow! And I I don't think that you would often hear this character described as transgender, but certainly some of the the identity concepts right. and questions uh, are are the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we thought that, that portrayal was really interesting. The PW Review says that uh, Weber's sensitive portrayal of his transgender robot hero's identity issues takes new and fascinating turns and a colorful assortment of saints and schemers fill mm. out the cast. Great. So that's at number eight. Then at number 12, the next new book on the list, we have Moving Target by J.A. Jantz. This is the ninth novel featuring Ali Reynolds. Uh, Ali is eager to escape the chaos surrounding her upcoming wedding, and so she heads to England and discovers a long unsolved murder. So this is another suspense series, um, again, quite popular, and uh, they we say that Jantz provides enough backstory to orient readers who are new to the series, while longtime fans should enjoy the insights into the protagonist's past. And finally, I wanted to mention uh, at number 13, The Museum of Extraordinary Things by Alice Hoffman. Um, Like the museum of its title, Hoffman's novel is a collection of curiosities. Each one is fascinating in its own right, but the PW Review says that they're a bit haphazardly connected as a whole. So there are two parallel stories uh, set in New York City in 1911 when it's sort of caught between the future and the past. Mm -hmm. There's, There's woods and there's sidewalks. There's a very strong division between rich and poor, which once again is a big issue in New York. And we say that uh, Hoffman's trademark magical realism gives this book great potential, but the connection between the two interlocking stories is somewhat tenuous and their complexities Mm. leave them incompletely explored. Nonetheless, that is there on our bestseller list, so certainly a lot of people thought it sounded pretty cool. Uh, That's number 13 on hardcover fiction. 
Well, all sounds good. Yeah, that's right. A couple right. of different, uh, especially the uh, second one you'd mentioned, uh, very different for us. The, uh, the, well, the, second the David third, Weber. The, the David Weber, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it, and there are a lot of best-selling books but, uh, in, in science fiction, particularly in mass market. If you, if you mm-hmm. look at the mass market lists, there's a lot of romance and a lot of science fiction, particularly tie-in novels for um, great big properties like Star Wars and Star Trek. But it's, it's rare to see this sort of um, standalone uh, original series mm-hmm. uh, get really to the top of our hardcover fiction list, not a genre list, not a mass market list, just right up there playing with the big kids. Right, sure. Well, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Terry Fry will take us back to the very first NCAA basketball tournament 75 years ago. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Terry Fry on the line. He's the author of March 1939, Before the Madness. Terry, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So your book sets the tone for what is one of the biggest tournaments in college sports. Tell us about the book. It's about the first NCAA basketball tournament in 1939, which was the brainchild of the National Association of Basketball Coaches, not the NCAA itself. And they wanted to kind of they wanted to counterbalance and and even combat the increasing influence of the New York basketball scene with the NIT being founded at Madison Square Garden in 1938. And that was put on by the Metropolitan Basketball Writers Association. So, in essence, the very first national tournament, the NIT, the year before, was put on by a bunch of sports writers who were very zealous in thumping the tubs and promoting that tournament. And it could show in some of the newspaper copy. And the coaches wanted to try to combat that national influence of the New York basketball scene and founded their own tournament, a very, very broad-based, very ambitious under, undertaking coast-to-coast involving eight teams officially but more in play-in games. And it was a very, very ambitious undertaking in a time of train travel, coast-to-coast games, financial uncertainty, and it was uh, turned out to be the forerunner of one of the most successful sporting events in world history. And, and tell us, what were the teams, these eight teams, and how did you come across the story of the Oregon basketball team? Well, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon. My father was on the football staff at the University of Oregon for 17 years, including the final five as the head coach. So I wandered the halls of the Oregon football offices in MacArthur Court, which is where the basketball team played, and I grew up with the 1939 Oregon Webfoots, which is what the official nickname of that team was. I grew up with them as kind of the uh, legendary figures on the basketball scene, and we were indoctrinated in that lore. And my father even had been uh, an assistant freshman basketball coach while he was coaching football. That's what coaches did in those days. And the many, many displays in that old arena, MacArthur Court on the University of Oregon campus, really indoctrinated me in the legend of this team. And I learned about it. I was fascinated by it. I met some of the players over the years, and especially the coach, Howard Hobson, who was living in Portland when I was a sports columnist at the Oregonian. So I was very, very interested in the first champions. And later in life, uh, frankly, probably 
uh, regretfully late, I decided to research this story and tell the story, not just of that team, but of that first tournament, because I found out and discovered there are a lot of myths out there about the primacy of the New York basketball scene and that national invitation tournament. And the NCAA tournament was the very ambitious and very successful in the artistic sense necessary step to make this a national coast-to-coast tournament. So I, I wanted to both tell the story of this 1939 Oregon team, but also the national college basketball scene that year can compare and contrast it to the National Invitation Tournament and the New York basketball scene and the national basketball scene and also put that all in the context of a very eventful month and a very eventful year in our nation's history as we could hear the drumbeats of war sounding in Europe. And all these young men were looking around and saying, uh, are we going to have to fight in this? Are we going to to become involved in Europe's affairs again? And we found out in March 1939 that uh, that uh, those drumbeats were getting louder and louder and louder with uh, the invasion of Czechoslovakia and all of that. So you went into this already knowing a lot about your subject matter. What did you learn that surprised you about college basketball, about the teams? I was really of kind of buying into that impression that perhaps the NCAA tournament was the real upstart and was inferior to the National Invitation Tournament. And I found out that there had been a lot of myths propagated over the years, and it's kind of enjoyable to puncture the myths in the course of research and answer your own questions, which is always the most important motivation in any book research, in my mind, is to answer your own questions. So I thirstily and zealously sought about to answer those questions and found out some of the myths were wrong, and that's that's probably... Uh, what surprised me, the extent of which surprised me. And I also really enjoyed delving into the actual details of some of these men's lives. I mean, the leading scorer in the very first NCAA championship game, John Dick, ended up being an admiral and also the captain of the USS Saratoga in the Vietnam War era. And I was really fascinated by and continue to be fascinated by the rather vehement debates going on on campus in 1939 about whether we should be involved in the European war again. And I frankly, as a history major and a student of history, still was somewhat surprised to find out the degree of the vehemence of that debate going on. It almost reminded me a little bit, very tiny bit, uh, of the Vietnam War era that we have come to know in my generation as kind of the flashpoint of dissent. So it's 75 years later. Presumably most of the people who were involved in this are no longer alive. So how do you go about researching it with a a degree of accuracy and confidence? Very zealous archival research, uh, including there at the New York Public Library, going through the defunct newspapers and seeking other avenues of archival research. Interviewing the offspring of the players, I did interview... Admiral Dick very briefly, he was aware uh, he'd been around a lot at the University of Oregon as kind of a booster, and I say booster in a good sense of the word. I knew Howard Hobson. Most of it, though, was archival and also interviewing the offspring and talking to people who were familiar with that team and those times and also, uh, in one case, one of the players' families had sat their father down and said, hey, tell us tell us about it, tell us about your war experience. He had ended up being a, uh, winning the Distinguished Flying Cross 
in the Pacific Theater. And so I went about attempting to find all the avenues I could for archival research and indirect personal research, and I think I mined it pretty well. Your previous books, among others, include Third Down and War and Horns, Hogs, and Nixon Coming, and they're both about historical college sport events, uh, and these two, football. What draws you to these subjects? Personal curiosity in most cases. Third Down and a War to Go in this case was uh, my father was as I said, the University of Oregon's head football coach, and had played for a national championship team at the University of Wisconsin in 1942 as an 18-year-old sophomore backup guard. And I, like a lot of members of my generation, had been too tardy in sitting him down and telling me about his war experiences. He had been a decorated P-38 fighter pilot in the Pacific. He had coached at Oregon. He coached in the National Football League for many, many years. His coaching biography simply said he played college football at Wisconsin in 1942, 1946, and 1947. And nobody in the media and not enough people around him said, hey, Jerry, Jerry Fry was his name. What were you doing during those three years? So late in life, we talked out about it quite extensively. And uh, he passed away in 2001, and I decided that everybody on that 1942 national championship team must have a story like his. And that's what I set out to find. And that led to third down and a war to go. A very compelling story, including two starters in that team who were killed in the Battle of Okinawa. And it was very, to me, uh, symbolic of a national uh, con- contribution and sacrifice, and so I made no pretense that this team was anything but symbolic and an all-American symbol. So that led to third down and a war to go, and and it was very very rewarding to do that. Horns, Hawks, and Nixon coming is about the 1969 Texas Arkansas football game, number one versus number two, very late in the year, uh, and it also was attended by President Nixon, attended by future President Bush. There was a Vietnam War protest on the hill above the stadium that was ignored by ABC. It was a great, terrific football game. The black students at Arkansas had decided to storm the field if the song Dixie Mm. were played to celebrate Arkansas's athletic triumph in that game. And, And so there were so many things going on. And a lot of that I found out through extensive research. And there was also a subplot of a player from Texas who... Fred Steinmark, who played on that game on a leg being eaten up by cancer, the leg was amputated six days later, and he died a year and a half later. And I had gone to his high school in Denver, and so I was. That's another case of me being indoctrinated in the legend of an element in the game and the book, and set out to to, uh, satisfy my curiosity by writing the book. So I want to go back a little bit to the connection between sports and the military. And clearly they demand the same sorts of things from people. They demand leadership. Um, they teach leadership. They demand and and create this sort of physical perfection. Uh, and they take a lot of time and sometimes the health and the lives of young men. So did you address those connections at all, both in, in March 1939 and in Third Down and a War to Go? But it was almost implied in March 1939 because I didn't go past 1939 except an epilogue-type material. Third Down and a War to Go also dealt with some of the same issues, and they did speak of the connection between football discipline and athletic discipline and 
military discipline. I, I sometimes think it's a bit overstated, especially when we get into the jargon of football with field general and mm-hmm. uh, aspects like that, and I don't like calling it a battle or anything like that. And in some cases, it's uh, very interesting because my father had been a decorated fighter pilot, as they say, and he was very involved with some controversial times on the University of Oregon campus during the anti-Vietnam War era. And he took a lot of grief because he essentially said, my players can have their own lives. They can protest the war if they want. I don't agree with them. I'm not particularly fond of that kind of uh, protest, but uh, darn it, I was flying over Japanese targets alone when I was 21 years old. I'm not going to call these kids and call these young men kids and treat them as kids. And so he saw the military discipline aspect as a little different in that he thinks young men of that age deserve to be treated as young men because of his military experience and he had seen some of his teammates killed. So the military connection at times to me with sports is overstated, but the discipline you can learn in sports certainly would be valuable. You've also written a novel entitled The Olympic Affair. Tell us about that and what it was like writing fiction amongst all this nonfiction. That was zealously researched as nonfiction. It's a story of 1936 Olympic champion Glenn Morris, uh, the decathlon champion, second only in notoriety at the 1936 Olympics to Jesse Owens, who won four gold medals at Berlin in front of Hitler, with Hitler watching. And Glenn Morris became enmeshed with notorious Nazi propagandist filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl, who had been an actress and a dancer. And the story was really not told until many, many, many years later when she, she talked about it in her autobiography, and it had been kind of an open secret. He was raised in a small town in Colorado. He was the student body president at Colorado State University, and it was, uh, he kind of hinted about it to a lot of friends and acquaintances, and I came across this years later and decided to research the Riefenstahl and Glenn Morris story. He was one of the most celebrated athletes in the 1930s, one of the most famous men in the world, and he had a very very steep fall and uh, died at age 61 in 1974 and I theorize in this book that was researched as nonfiction. I decided to it would be better done as using the absolute zealousness uh, of research techniques in nonfiction to tell the story in fictional kind of narrative form and it's almost cinematic in scope, and that's the approach I tried to give it. I filled in the blanks with my imagination, but also telling a story and attempting to make it compelling, interesting, and as close to the truth as I can make it. So that we took the very risky decision to turn essentially a nonfiction book into a historical novel, and it really isn't as loosely told as that sounds because it was really researched as as nonfiction, but it's a very compelling story. I'm very, very proud of it. It's drawn some movie interest, and I think think because of its ambitiousness and uniqueness, I'm very, very proud of that book. So, Terry, what's next for you? More fiction, more nonfiction? What's the deal? I'm a frustrated young adult novelist, too, so I'm working on a novel that I've set aside about four times over the years to to work on other projects, so that's in the works. 
but I'm also now working on a nonfiction book in partnership with a, another writer named Adrian, Adrian Dater on a hockey team, the Colorado Avalanche, and uh, celebrated new coach Patrick Waugh. So I'm delving back, diving back into sports in a contemporary way. I'd really like to close the loop. You know, I've written books about football, basketball, track and field, and I'd kind of like to get to next to do a baseball book because that was my best sport. I enjoyed the sport the most, and I think there's a middle ground between kind of the over-intellectualization of the game and the excessive statistical analysis and and the overall romanization of the game, saying uh, such things as like a pitch-out is a metaphor for our military strategy in Vietnam. I'd like to write a baseball book somewhere between those extremes, and and, uh, that's my next goal. Well, that sounds super exciting. We've been talking with Terry Fry. You can find his book, March 1939, in stores right now, just in time for March Madness. Terry, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, the best way to look at all my books and my background is terryfry.com, T-E-R-R-Y-F-R-E-I.com. All right. Thanks so much. Hi, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald tells us about some hot new comics and graphic novels. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the staff and contributors of Publishers Weekly. Today, PW Comics Reviews editor Heidi McDonald will highlight some exciting new and forthcoming graphic novels. Hello, uh, Heidi. Hey there, guys. How's it going? It's Hello. going very well. It's nice to have you back. It's yeah. been a while. Yes, it has. So, um, you know, I like to spread things out so I can think of some new things to talk about. So tell us about <laughs> these new things that you have to talk about. Well, yeah, it's a, you know, the start of the year, sort of, kind of still. I mean, although baseball season's beginning, so that means that we're well into it. Um, and uh, a lot of new graphic novels coming out, and some of them very exciting. So, uh, always a new year. Um, let's see, and, and some of them that I, I have written about for print, but I'm just so... Uh, I'm so in love with this book, Beautiful Darkness, which came out from Drawn and Quarterly. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, a French graphic novel about tiny little fairies who live inside a the body of a dead girl. And hmm. as the body begins to decompose, terrible things happen. <laughs> wow. Wow. And the best part of this book is it's drawn in this amazing watercolor style that is so charming. And then it becomes kind of a um, Lord of the Flies story as the fairies try to find their way in this hostile world. Um, it's it's by um, a French writer, Fabian Coleman, and it's drawn by Caraset, which is a team of artists. Uh, it's so good. It's so wonderful. It's such a great story. And it really, uh, uh, like uh, people keep saying, it's the borrowers meet the Lord of the Flies. Mm. <laughs> that that is not a combination I ever would have thought of, and illustrated too. Yeah, so. yeah, that one's that one's really good, and that's got a lot of attention too on BuzzFeed and elsewhere, which kind of uh, boosted the sales, which was exciting. Um, let me see. I know I mentioned baseball, and yes. there's uh, the uh, new book is out about baseball from NBM, uh, which is called All Star by Jesse Lonergan, and it's about a young baseball player who's in high school and about to go to college as the star baseball player and then 
something goes wrong, he does something really stupid, and he has to figure out how to get on with it. But I really like this book because, uh, as a baseball fan, it has like some sports scenes, it has some dumb teenager scenes, it has a good heart to it, uh, a really good story arc for the character. But it kind of it's it's hard to do sports in American comics. I thought this one was a graphic novel that really. Um, really kind of brought that that uh that feeling home so and what are the graphics like for that uh yeah that one is kind of drawn in this a little more impressionistic style it's not totally realistic but i think that works for sports i think if you're drawing like these detailed draw uh action uh you know action scenes i think a lot of times that detracts from the flow of the story so um i think the way it was drawn actually was really effective And, and you know sports are so kinetic especially baseball which as as all of us baseball fans know, is, is a lot of time of sitting around and waiting for something to happen exactly. and then it happens very quickly yeah so I, I'd be interested to see how that's portrayed yeah. visually it's 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 uh, like I said it's a little more impressionistic but I, I think the style works um, you know in Japan they're huge on sports mm-hmm. stories and manga mm-hmm. I mean they'll have literally a very famous manga was Lone Wolf and Cub one of the most famous and the artist after he drew that went on to draw this golfing comic wow yeah which was like yeah. literally would be one uh, complete manga volume of 128 pages for one golf tournament so it'd be page after page of the guy wow. putting and you know going to his his golf bag and getting out the right driver I am literally for volume after volume so but it was actually very good um, I don't think American comics are quite ready for that yet so well, maybe if, American readers are not quite yeah, ready for that as yeah. much as we love sports yeah I don't think we ever will be uh actually um another book that won't be out for a couple months and i've been talking about but again it's so great is uh can't we talk about something more pleasant by raj chast i think we actually all right yes and we have a i think we have a profile of her coming up in the magazine um she should be known to new yorker readers of course yes and she did uh the cover of uh Two years ago, our BEA issue. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So she is a local uh, heroine, but this is her first long-form book. As I said, she's known for her short short comics in The New Yorker, which are whimsical and yet acerbic. And uh, this book is about her parents aging and how she has to kind of deal with that and, and um, you know, the sad and yet hilarious and touching things that happen. Uh, and it's not sentimental, which I, you know, I think that kind of story would be detrimental to, but uh, it's so well done. And it's so... Uh, it just captures her parents. I mean, I think that's one of the best things about it. Like, they really are curmudgeons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's very sympathetic to them, but... Uh, but also, like, the kind of pains in the asses, too. So, And I think this is a really universal story um, that a lot of people are going to relate to. So, But a, another a really, you know, adult-themed, very, very far from Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, but I feel like it's it's really not uncommon for, for comic artists and graphic artists to, to talk about their parents in, in their you, artwork. I mean, I'm thinking about Fun Home, of course, right. but also things like um, Kate Beaton just posts these wonderful little comics right. whenever she goes home for Christmas. Right. And I feel like I know her parents at this point, you, you know, and um, it, it just, it seems like a, a natural sort of connection somehow. It does. It does. Actually, when I was in uh, Europe at the Angolum Comics Festival recently, I was told that in Spain, the hottest graphic novel ever there by a native Spanish artist was, uh, I, I don't remember the Spanish title, but 
uh, it translates as wrinkles, and it was actually the same subject. It was about this guy dealing mm. with his aging parents, and it sold like 50,000 copies, which is a lot for Spain, mm-hmm. and got turned into a movie that everybody went to see. I mean, it was like a real, um, you know, a real, um, you know, talking point there. So, uh, yeah, I think... I think comics are very intimate and personal. Uh, the can be. I mean, they can obviously be so many different things. But I think in dealing, I think you're right. I think um, I think they can be very effective in, in capturing those kind of relationships. Another one that's coming out in a little while is uh, is interesting. It's called Over Easy. It's by Mimi Pond, and she wrote the very first episode of The Simpsons back in the day. Hmm. And yeah. uh, she was uh, gra- well, was is a graphic designer from Los Angeles. And uh, I think, you know, in a, in a lot of ways, I think, like, she was very well-known in the 80s and 90s and then kind mm-hmm. of was uh, whatever happened to. And for this book, again, it's her first full-length graphic novel. She goes back to a, I'm sure it's semi-autobiographical. I haven't, I haven't seen the whole, the whole skinny on that. But it's a young woman who goes to Berkeley as a waitress who wants to be an artist. And, you know, what happens? I mean, it's definitely a look at this world of hippies and underground comics and, you know, the beginnings of organic food and all these things uh, from the 70s. And, it's a, and also with, like, beach culture and that kind of thing. It's a really nice, nice yeah. picture of California at, oh, at that great. time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. It's very, very good. And, you know, she learns some lessons so right, right. <laughs> that we can all relate to. And what are the illustrations for that? Well, that one, I guess you would describe that one more as uh, evolved new wave. Uh I think Mimi was really somebody who was very influential in the whole kind of new wave cartooning of that period. Um, And so it kind of has, it's it's hard if if you know what I'm talking about, that 80s kind of look. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely upgraded to a more personal style, I would say. So... Um, it's a little bit nostalgic, but uh, also very, very well observed. So, um, yeah, I, I, all these stories, I mean, it's, it's I, well, I guess Beautiful Darkness, that definitely talks about the fantastic side of comics. Um, but I'm always interested in the, in the personal ones, you know, the ones that <laughs> have this kind of, you know, touchingness to them, I guess. Mm-hmm. So that, uh, uh, that you know, because it's, it's so universal. So And it's exciting to me to see books like this getting a lot of attention. Um, I'll be very curious to see how widely uh how widely known the chast book in particular gets because you know, you know it seems to me she's such a um a well-known figure to begin with for sure so yeah great well thank you so much heidi all right my pleasure thank you and that's it for today's show i'm mark rotella and i'm rose fox and you've been listening to publishers weekly radio you can find this and every episode of publishers weekly radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pw radio and on itunes available for you to listen absolutely free check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story thanks for listening you've been listening to publishers weekly radio show 